Today's guest, Amanda Ripley, is an investigative journalist for Time Magazine and The Atlantic. Her reporting on education has explored the interaction between public policy and human behavior. In 2013, she published The Smartest Kids in the World and How They Got That Way, a New York Times bestseller. Amanda's reporting has helped focus and shape the conversation in higher ed and higher ed policy. This will be OR Higher Ed's first ever two-part series. Part one, released last week on orhighered.com, focused on Amanda's recent cover story for The Atlantic titled The Upwardly Mobile Barista. Today's conversation is part two and will focus on reporting she's done about education reforms around the world that have changed outcomes for students. In the interest of full disclosure, I first spoke with Amanda in late 2014 while she was reporting on the partnership between Starbucks and Arizona State University Online. She interviewed me in the course of her reporting after having spoken with a student I'd worked with as a success coach. Coming up on OR Higher Ed. This is something we know seems to lift all boats all over the world. I think education is like healthcare. You know, it's a complex system that involves a lot of human beings and a lot of emotions and a lot of policy and regulations. Every country struggles to line up reality with ideals and hopes and fears. I don't think we're unique in that. I think every country brings its own set of baggage to education policy. Maybe what's surprising is how similar the problems are around the world as opposed to how different they are. Welcome to ORHigherEd.com's podcast. My name is Dan Adams, and I'm OR Higher Ed's founder and editor. Our mission is to enhance student outcomes through effective education policy in the state of Oregon. So I'd like to start with how you became interested in reporting on education and education policy. Right. I, I did a lot of writing on crime and uh terrorism and disasters and different things like that and, and how human beings respond to extreme stress and sometimes human behavior in other realms as well. But, but uh, I was most interested in, in the kind of counterintuitive stories about how differently people behave from how we expect or how policymakers expect and, and you know, what can we learn from that in a productive way to try to serve actual humans in their actual world. And gap between human behavior and policy is vast in education, more so than I think in other realms. <laughs> I'm still a little bit familiar with smartest kid in the world. I'm wondering whether you see that as being a uniquely American challenge, or is that a challenge that is faced around the world and sort of responded to in, in different ways? I think education is like health care. You know, it's a complex system that involves a lot of human beings and a lot of emotion and a lot of policy and regulation. So in that sense, every country struggles, I think, to line up reality with uh, ideals and hopes and fears. So I don't think we're unique in that. I think every country brings its own set of baggage uh, to education policy. And maybe what's surprising is how similar the problems are as opposed to how different they are around the world. So there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of culture, a lot of history, a lot of economic factors that shape education, right? But what's surprising is how many things are similar. What are some of the similarities you saw? Well, you know, all over the world, people struggle with the same kinds of tensions. You know, how, how much mandate should the government impose upon schools and teachers and educators as opposed to autonomy? That, that tension is universal. I think, you know, how much do you demand accountability versus giving autonomy? And we know that both are important, right? But in education, the levers are really 
it's not direct, right? It's hard to know which which buttons to push to get which results, and it's true in, in healthcare as well. So I think that's a similar thing. All over the world, parents worry about their children. Parents have various anxieties. Those anxieties differ, but in general, when given an opportunity, parents will often segregate their kids uh, all over the world if they are nervous for any reason. So that's a that's a real challenge, right, all over the world because that kind of segregation almost always leads to worse outcomes for almost yeah. everyone involved. So, so that's, that's universal. You mentioned like accountability and autonomy, and I, I want to follow up on that. Finland first gave accountability, and then because of the respect that the teachers garnered, they found that more autonomy. They yeah. sort of moved back and forth on that spectrum depending on the qualifications of the teachers in classrooms as well as the respect that was afforded to them by students, parents, families, etc. Right. So it's definitely a question of which comes first, second, and third, and it sort of depends on where you are in the evolution of a, of a sophisticated education system. And you're right that in Finland, they had a pretty top-down, uh, accountability-focused, kind of no-child-left-behind moment And in the 60s and 70s before they went from good to great. And so that was a process that was not pleasant. I don't think teachers looked at it as a golden era in Finnish education. They had to keep hourly diaries of what they were doing. Every school was visited by national inspectors who had to approve their plans for the year ahead. And, you know, it's just there wasn't a lot of trust and autonomy for teachers. But then at the same time, you know, partly by chance and partly on purpose, Finland made it much more uh, serious and respected to become a teacher. They made it much harder to enter education college, and they made the training much more rigorous and hands-on. And over time, that starts to um, build trust and respect in a system. When getting into education college is as hard as getting into MIT in the United States, people, rightly or wrongly, people see that as a signal that this is a serious, hardcore profession. And it makes it easier then to take away some of that top-down scaffolding, you know, that was in place. So they, in the 1980s, removed a lot of these things like the National Inspectorate and the diaries and all that went away, and they really included teachers in writing a new national curriculum um, and, and trying to give teachers a lot more responsibility and at the same time more autonomy. So they were really responsible and expected to do experimental research and evidence-based teaching in their classroom, and, and that was all supported by their training. But it was only possible over time, you know, so that, that is the question. It's like, when, when have you done enough with the accountability and when do you need to, to ease up on certain things? When do you have enough horizontal accountability, like peer-level accountability, that you don't need to impose it from, from above? One of the things that comes through in your work is opportunities missed in education reform in the States. I think I heard you say, like, you know, sort of walk right up to the edge of making the, the tough changes and then kind of taking a step back. I wonder if other places have sort of continued to push through that wall and made, made tough choices, made tough compromises, and the system now may be working better um, in terms of preparing students. Like, are there lessons to be learned for the United States, or is it, is it just a very different culture, political structure, et cetera? I think the biggest lesson to be learned, and maybe the most powerful lesson, is the amount of change that is possible. When you look around the world now, just over the past decade, we've seen a whole bunch of countries dramatically, dramatically improve what they're doing educationally for virtually all their kids. So 
You know, these countries, I'm thinking of Poland, Estonia, Vietnam, these are countries that have significant child poverty, I mean, real problems, you know, and yet they've managed to dramatically improve not just their average uh, test score, right, but their high school graduation rates, um, their equity. So, in other words, even if you come from a low-income background, your chances of succeeding are much higher than they are in the States. And that, to me, once you see the scale of that change, it's, it's kind of like, I mean, it, it's energizing, you know, because it, it shows you that this is possible, even in a big, messy, complicated country like Poland. You know, Poland, in just the year 2000, Polish 15-year-olds were performing below average for the developed world on a fairly sophisticated test of math, reading, and science, and sort of higher-order thinking called the PISA test. And they were performing well below their American peers, too. And then they did a bunch of things in that system. They delayed tracking, so, you know, they kept all kids together in a pretty rigorous academic environment until age 16, and then you could choose to go to a vocational track or not. But, you know, they really tried to keep all kids together for longer. And they introduced a new set of more rigorous standards, like the Common Core, um, for what kids should know, and some other changes that they made. And you just see this dramatic change. I mean, it's, you know, it's obviously it's hard to isolate what's causing that, right? But by the year 2012, um, you know, Polish 15-year-olds were performing above average for the developed world on that same test in every subject. And had a greater percentage of their kids performing at an advanced level in math than Finland, which is, you know, a much smaller, more homogenous, and less impoverished country. So that scale of change is, first of all, really hopeful and what we should aim for. And then the other thing is, you know, there are some similarities in what these countries have done. It's not, you know, it's not an impossible, uh, impossible algorithm, but I, I think the things that are similar are, are things that aren't necessarily part of our debate uh, in the U.S. So what are the things that seem to work all over the world? Well, uh, things like delaying tracking. <laughs> I mean, that Finland, Germany, Poland, South Korea, every country that decides, okay, look, all kids have to have rigorous academic skills and numeracy and fluency. That's it. <laughs> there's no there's no other option until pretty late in your educational career. That seems to help all kids do better, even the kids who were already in the you know kind of gifted and talented track right so um the u s the u s tracks earlier and more aggressively than most countries in the world through things like gifted and talented through honors classes that lead to a p classes um through zip code you know I mean a third of African American students attend high schools that don't even offer calculus even if they wanted and that is that is tracking so you know this is this is something we know seems to lift all boats all over the world, much like high-quality early childhood education or pre-K and investing heavily in a more serious teacher training uh, system. So those, those are some things that we know work. They're not sexy. They're not exciting. But they, they, are, um, they are on a short list. And there's a lot of things that don't work. <laughs> so that's encouraging. Yeah. You mentioned kind of talking with students. Your reporting consistently features the voices of students. I'm curious what you've learned from talking with students that policymakers may not know or aren't yet paying enough attention. You know, students are this incredible <laughs> asset. Uh, they're this, this, like these uh, experts on education that nobody ever talks to. And there's now there's a ton of research out about which questions are valid and reliable over time. And you have to ask students intelligent questions 
But when you do, you find that they can give you really constructive feedback, especially because there's so many of them, right? <laughs> so, you know, if you've got 30 students or 60 students, the average is going to be very telling. So one or two might, you know, might not be taken seriously, or might have a, you know, just a grudge or something. But not not 30 or 60. And so, you find that students, because they've spent so much time sitting there observing or participating in class. They can tell you things you can't see on your own. I mean, it's it's really hard, like in any job, to see to see things from the point of view of an outsider, so someone who doesn't already know fractions, right? So when you're able to solicit feedback from the person you're trying to help, you should. I think there are kids all over the country who are independent-minded, stubborn. Don't fit in necessarily to their high school or their town, and and are really curious about the rest of the world. So it takes it takes different forms, right? But you know the the thousands of American teenagers who decide to go live in another country every year, uh, I think, are probably not typical in some ways. But at the same time, that spirit of adventure and confidence and curiosity that that's something that we've got a lot of, and it's a great national strength, I think. So in your reporting for smartest kids in the world. It's clear you spent a lot of time looking at data uh, regarding student success. So I'm curious what you found in the data regarding obstacles faced by students' schools and maybe some keys to promoting student success. One of the amazing things about the data, which is now much, much more interesting and complex than we ever had before, which isn't to say it's near where we want it to be, but it's, there's a lot there. And the deeper you go, the more interesting it gets. So it doesn't usually end up in the headlines. But one of the interesting things is how many things don't correlate with education outcomes. So you know, past the baseline, bare minimum level, which all of our states reach, uh, Pouring more money into education does not correlate with education outcomes. Um, the percentage of kids in private school doesn't does not correlate with education outcomes. There's lots and lots of things that don't seem to have any relationship. The one that I heard you talk about that just blew my mind was parental involvement. That, yeah. as a, having been a classroom teacher, that completely flew in the face of what I thought I'd heard about the importance of involving parents. Yeah, it's shocking. I mean, there was a great study on this and looking at you know, which parental behaviors seem to lead to more thoughtful, engaged students over time. And what they found is that the more time parents spent participating in extracurricular activities, showing up at school, going to events, doing PTA work, the worse their kids did <laughs> by age 15 on this PISA test of critical thinking and reading. And it held even when you controlled for socioeconomic background. But luckily, um, it's not that parents shouldn't be involved, right? It's just it's how they're involved. And, and there's this will, I think, resonate with your teaching experience. So the more time that parents spent reading to their kids when they were little, almost every day, and then talking to them as they got older, you know, really, you know, talking to them about books or music or movies or news events or whatever, that kind of dialogue uh, back and forth seemed to be much, much, much more powerful <laughs> than, uh, than any number of fundraisers or, or sporting events you could go to. So, so the same study found that the more time parents spent doing those activities, um, the better their kids did on this test of critical thinking and reading by age 15, and also regardless of socioeconomic background. So the encouraging thing about that is, you know, you don't need to have a PhD or a million dollars to, to talk to your kid. Um, and even just reading on your own for pleasure was strongly related to student learning. So 
you know, when parents read on their own for pleasure, it sends a signal to kids that this is actually a real thing. It's not like something you say you should do and then don't do, you know. So um, so it's, it's not the parents shouldn't be involved, right? It's just that it needs to be in authentic ways that do lead kids to think for themselves. Are there systems or best practices for supporting parents and performing behaviors that do correlate with student success? Like other yeah, I'm so glad you asked. I'm so glad you asked because <laughs> nobody ever asked. And it's like, yes, there are. And it's not that hard. In fact, I think this is probably the single easiest things, thing that American schools could do differently to get better results um, overnight. So there was, a, there was a recent study that came out of Stanford where they sent a bunch of uh, pretty, pretty big sample. And they had, you know, from all different levels of schools, elites or non-elite, and they, they sent text messages with literacy tips out to parents on a regular basis to one group, right, randomly selected. So they would say things like, you know, when you reach your kids, don't forget to ask them a question about what you think is going to happen next or what's happening in the story, that kind of thing. Those are, those are very simple things that you know as a teacher really make a difference, but that as a parent, you know, you just don't know that. You, don't, you have no way to know that, that that's important. So they, they sent out these literacy kits. Then the other group, they sent, you know, sort of non-academic uh, information. And sure enough, <laughs> the parents of all different economic backgrounds did what the literacy tips suggested, and their students' literacy scores went up pretty quickly, significantly. So, you know, this is a pretty straightforward, <laughs> this is a pretty straightforward lesson. If, you, if schools, principals, teachers, give parents leadership, if they tell them what their priorities are and what activities matter most, parents will do what they say. Not always, not perfectly, right? but in general, I think parents want to be involved in their kids' education. They are involved. Actually, American parents are more involved with childcare than most parents around the world, even in you know, countries with a lot better social welfare benefits. And there's just a lot of distraction and a lot of competing demands on parents in America. So if your school's asking you to chaperone a field trip, bake cookies for a bake sale, and come to a basketball game, that doesn't leave much bandwidth or energy left for reading your kid, right? And if, if, that, if there's a very clear, consistent, compelling signal from the school that, you, that reading is the most important thing you can do for your nine-year-old and that you should do that first before you bake cookies, and if you can't bake cookies, that's okay. If there isn't that signal, then there's going to be a lot of noise, right? There's going to be a lot of good intentions that don't ever coalesce, that don't ever help teachers help kids learn to think for themselves. This is something that's actually a lot of work is being done right now in higher education. I think of the research being done on appropriate and effective nudges to do things like FAFSA completion, et cetera. Um, a lot of work is being done on when should those messages go out, what's the right content of those messages, and I think universities and states are looking at how to implement this. Is anyone um, making use of this, this outcome? I don't think the biggest barrier is not resources or technology. Um, you know, most schools have, they have, you know, have the parents' email or cell phone numbers or some contact information already, uh, already compiled and they already send out regular regular messages. The biggest obstacle is the mindset. You know, um, often I find that with very good intentions, experts in any field kind of underestimate non-experts. <laughs> and this is true for journalists. This is true for teachers. This is true for lawyers. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's a natural bias. And the way it plays out in education is that sometimes educators, not all, but some, feel like, you know, parents are busy, parents don't get it, parents are 
struggling, parents are this or that, and you know, it's their job to worry about all the all the academics and, and not enlist parents in that. And they don't want to, you know, they don't want to assume parents can read if they can't read, and they don't want to. There's a lot of like, there's a, <laughs> there's a lot of discomfort that comes down when you actually say, well, why haven't you sent out literacy tips? If you know, <laughs> if we have like, you know, evidence that this really works and would make your teachers' lives a lot easier, why don't you do it? And you get all these kinds of all this discomfort. So part of that is cultural. I mean, in Japan, this happens as a matter of course. You know, um, there's a, a nice book out called Parenting Without Borders, where uh, the writer is a, a mother who has raised her kids half in Massachusetts and half in Japan, and she writes about how you know there's just constant, regular, simple, clear instruction coming home from the teachers in Japan about how they were teaching fractions or whatever it was, and simple ways that parents could reinforce that at home. And it was just constant communication back and forth. And that doesn't, you know, it didn't seem like it added a huge amount of work to her life. The kids were little. But, you know, it assumed that parents and teachers were partners. It didn't just give lip service to that. So there would be like days every year where parents were invited to just sit in the back of the classroom and observe so they could see. Well, we know you didn't learn fractions this way, but this is how we teach fractions now. And they could learn it too with their kids. You know, so even if they didn't know how to add fractions or didn't remember, then they could relearn it and then talk about it with their kids. And you know, there's a million ways in which kids will lead you down a path of conversation that somehow comes around to fractions, which is incredible. But <laughs> you know, when, di when dividing up a cupcake or a pizza or something, there are ways <laughs> to work this in. So, so there's, it just, you know, part of this is just a, a mindset. You know, we got this covered. Parents just need to like, you know, give us some money or give us some cookies or show up and cheer. We got this whole thing covered. And guess what we don't? What we are asking teachers and professors and educators to do is very different than what we used to ask them to do, right? And it is really hard. And I think we should use every resource that we have, especially millions and millions of highly motivated parents. OurHigherEd.com's mission is to enhance student outcomes through effective education policy in the state of Oregon. The website features a monthly podcast with policymakers and analysts, aggregates the best of what's written about higher ed policy in Oregon and around the country, and publishes original white papers. Our website is www.orhighered.com, and we're on Twitter at orhighered. As always, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or any podcasting app. While you're there, please help others discover the podcast by leaving a rating and a review.